listen to the people Listen to the people, people, oh People in culture, oh yeah It's time for the gathering podcast For the gathering podcast. All right, Martin. Kasim. First up, season two, episode one. We talked with uh, Sean Drazy. So what are your takeaways from this conversation? I was most excited about hearing how Sean transitioned his career. If you are in a weird industry <laughs> like Sean was, or you had interesting career aspirations and they just got flipped upside down, you're going to want to listen to Sean's story. Absolutely. Yeah, there's some left ball curves, and he's he's a really fun guy. So I think the episode flows really well. The conversation was fun. I had a great time. Yeah. And uh, and for, I don't know if it's in the episode, but you know how I know Sean is he he was working uh, for Kronos Group as a consultant when they were scaling from like eight people, or no, they were scaling from like two people. This is a cannabis company in, in here in Canada for to like 150 people. Yeah. Uh, here at Startwell in 2018, 19. So that's how I met him. And that's why I reached out to have him on the show because I know he's helped all sorts of companies. Yeah. Recruiter, uh, a seasoned recruiter. He he was a recruiter back in the day when you used to dial up. And he explains it's not going to be useful for right now. But what's most interesting is that he takes all of that like hungry, scrappy recruiter mindset and yeah. he shows you how he's applying it today with the technology that's available. And so, yeah, he used to dial for dollars, basically, literally just dialing into corporate numbers and then just punching extensions blindly and just saying, hey, can I get a hold of so-and-so until he got the right person. And I think that's an interesting thing in this episode that kind of like comes out is, you know, I guess it's social engineering. That's what we called it in, <laughs> in, in, in hacker culture back yeah. in the 90s. We called it social engineering where you're literally doing uh, whatever you can to figure out organizational structures, how to navigate them, uh, and how to get what you need from a company because a company really is just a bunch of people. Yeah. So who does what? Who likes doing what? And who can you actually communicate with at a company to get what you want from them? Valuable skills as a recruiter and any people operations person, really. Absolutely. So... Sean Drazy, first episode, season two of The Gathering Podcast. Sean Drazy? That is me. Thank you for joining us in studio today. You're quite welcome. My pleasure. It is uh, wonderful to have you here. We have a little bit of career history because you worked for one of Startwell's clients. I did. That was an office tenant in 2018-19. Yes. Um, and have since changed roles. We'll get into your career history Okay. Uh, but I'd like to know the backdrop. And I think a lot of our audience enjoys hearing the backdrop of, you know, how you found yourself in like people in culture, HR. What, what's that all about? How far do you want me? We got all day. Yeah. Well, let's start at the beginning. I mean, like, it, it, did you have a passion for, you know, helping people? This is something we hear a lot. I'm going to say yes, that has changed. So if we go way back. That has changed. Rich, that has changed. Like, <laughs> I hate people now. They um, I was supposed to be uh, an RCMP, uh, so I went. I wanted to be a mounted policeman. I went into recruiting uh, after I graduated university, failed the eye test. Kept falling off the horse. Yep. Yep. Sorry, uh, nothing we can do for you, buddy. I'm colorblind, believe it or not, so I didn't know that till I was 21 years of age. That's great. Um, so the helping piece or the 
group dynamics piece. I was teaching kids karate at the time. You didn't know that you were colorblind until this, no. until you applied to be a uh, mounted police. Until I mounted. took the test and I failed the plate test. Okay. There's a color plate test. So, um, wow. teaching kids karate was good with the kids. Uh, one of the parents, this guy's name was Paul Sanuda, said, you ever thought about social work? No. So I was at a university, unemployed, didn't know what to do, wandering the streets, I guess, as a youth, <laughs> as a 20-year-old youth. So I applied to get into social work, uh, and I did. I became a social worker. I worked uh, young offenders, child welfare. I was a corrections officer, believe it or not, for some time. Wow. Um, that's got a high burnout rate. Sure. Yeah. So I was looking for something synonymous akin to social work career development presented itself mm -hmm. went back to school uh funny enough uh worked at a hotel at night put myself through school through the day in career development uh ended up at the federal government doing uh we'll call it second career stuff career development so wait, as you're figuring out what your career is you're studying career development exactly okay and then starting to work in career development exactly isn't that fascinating that is fascinating it's uh so i did that for three years i ran a thing called the job find club um in london ontario and that is job search or career development if you will um, so I did a little bit of lecturing at uh, UWO, Ivy School of Business, before it was mm. big. Mm. And somebody said, you know, you're really good on both sides of the table. You're good with the employers. You're good with the, the clients. You're good with the matching. Be a recruiter. And so the thing is, recruiters get paid a lot more than career counselors. So I dove into that. And uh, in the beginning, I was running a manufacturing desk. I was on the back end doing re... I was doing sourcing for the account managers. And believe it or not, this was, I'm going to say, mid-2000s. Okay. So we were still on big green screens, believe it or not. In the mid-2000s? In the mid-2000s at this recruiting company. You mean like still... monochrome? Monochrome. You're yep. on like big, IBM XT's. Big, big dog. Back of a uh, manufacturing facility. Olivetti's. Olivetti's. Olivetti's, believe it or not. Okay. So all, we still all... had paper files. That's a we, challenge. Yeah, exactly. We were some. I think some people were still on dial phones. And uh, the big, exactly, I'm glad I got them off. <laughs> the, the piece with this was I was the sole a recruiter or sourcer. And I had the, the orders would come in on a big whiteboard. We were running automotive manufacturing recruiting. So I was doing anything Detroit to Ottawa, um, tier one, tier two, OEM. And engineers, uh, you name it, anybody in manufacturing, I was doing 75 to 100 calls per day. So I was calling into the Dura Automotives, the, the machine shops in Windsor, pulling i was just pulling and i had about a 24-hour fill time where i had to get wow had to get wild. resumes over to the ams to get them into send out and process so i did that that was commission only hmm. my first placement was for a corporate controller at tecumseh manufacturing in london Small motor manufacturing. London, Ontario for our international London, audience. London, Ontario, Canada. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so I did that. And the funny thing was, um, this was a group of people that have been doing this since the early 70s. Right. So the That's guy, when they bought all that gear, right? So the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the guy running the company had been in the game, like when it, there was no head, like when headhunting was just, yeah. you know, what's that? Yeah, yeah. He had been in the game since the 70s. So he, he knew everyone in the sector. He knew who's who. So there wasn't so much a big deal of getting clients in. But what this group didn't see is the Mm -hmm. gathering economic storm coming. Uh, So the great downturn hit. You're talking 2008, 2008, 2009. So we would have like probably $300,000 on the board in search. And one afternoon, you guys. Yeah. Phone started ringing. But, 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 wipe, 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 hold, hold, hold. Cancel. Off, yeah. off, off. We were running a contingency shop. So most of it was contingency. Some of it was pay up front. Yeah. Little bit of, re- little bit of, you know, fee, fee up front. Mm-hmm. Some of the bigger clients, okay, we need a little bit up front. Then we're going to pay once they get in, we're going to pay the rest in cash. So there was some retained work. Yeah. 80% was contingent. So those calls came in. And you had $300,000 in business in process, gone. So I saw this group of business people just implode, just lose their minds. I left that. I went to run a desk, a full desk at a smaller shop in London that was in the small to medium-sized business end of things. So I ran both sides. And And this is the funny story. And please feel free to step in jokes. I got into chicken manufacturing. <laughs> I got I, I got into ag business. Oh my God. Chicken I, manufacturing. I love it. I, I not got, farming. I, I manufacturing. I got into to to ag manufacturing. And yeah. the other thing you'll laugh. Yeah. Tires. So okay. we were hired uh by Cal Tire. And at that point in time. Same company, Chickens and Tires. Chickens and Tires. That's where, Man. that's the claim to fame. See, hipsters would love that on the board of a new restaurant. Chicken you know? and Tires. Chicken, chicken right? and Tires. There you go. An emoji or something. Yeah. So I I did that. And the thing at that point in time, uh, I'll say with those uh, staple businesses, if you will. Yeah. Um, Chickens and tires, yeah. I, they're not going anywhere. We I, need both of those. You got to go places. I, you got to eat things. I was recruiting <laughs> general managers for uh, tire stores in southwestern Ontario between London and Windsor. Yeah. And there was just these these outlets that were servicing ag, uh, big, you know, we'll call it snow plow, stuff like mm. that, like big earth moving companies. And so I did that. I was successful at that. The chicken piece is these were smaller engineering companies subbing to Maple Leaf Foods and some of the larger carriers in Ontario at the time to put in robots. Mm. So that was the big play mid to late 2000s was automating these chicken plants. Yeah. And I had to find people to automate the chicken plants. Those that have that background, those that were in chicken. Yeah. And that was, uh, I got to I gotta tell both of you, during that downturn, we did well. I did very well. Um, so, you know, I did so well that the owner of this company said, well, Sean, we're going to make you a manager. 
So I ran the perm team. I had a whole sales team and we had everybody in this really niche, weird, small businesses in mm -hmm. Southwestern Ontario. And, you know, I, I got to say, I was quoting, we were quoting 25% cut. Yeah. Like there was nothing to it. Yep. No problem. So it wasn't 15% contingent. It was 25%. What does mean? Sorry, uh, you're, you're placing someone for a job and you earn, as the person who places or finds that talent, you earn 25% of their annual salary for the base. first year. Yeah, 25% yeah. of ACE. And that's, I was quoting that entire. Yeah, so you're like filling these. That's wild. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Um, what do you think? So there's definitely the lesson here in like niche, right? There is, and that was part of, you know, why the owner and I had to go our separate ways because you got to think around that time, there was lots, the Great Recession was very... I like how you call it the Great Recession. The Great Depression. Very biblical. Recession. Well, yeah, we can we can go that way if you want. But um, <laughs> there, there was lots of nobody knew what was going to happen. It was the end of the world. Now, the funny thing is, as we talked very quickly, that was the birth of blockchain. Yeah. Well, you know, in a big in a big way, blockchain had always been, or peer to peer sharing had been around for a bit, mm -hmm. and so Lynn was very big on you got to niche this, you got to niche that, and you got to run the team. So I was running a team, I was running a desk, and the owner and I didn't see eye to eye because this was a very business focused person and. I was very big on just being very grateful, uh, not only to the candidates, but to the businesses that mm. you got to hire and you got to pay your invoice. <laughs> there's, there's the other piece of contingency. Right. Not only do you have to hire, you got to pay us on time. So I would always do visits and say thank you and drop off cards and stuff like that and, you know, tell a few funny stories. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, she wasn't into that. And I just went... Uh, we don't say thank you. You just got to stick to business. So we, I just went, that's not a warm fuzzy. That's yeah. not who I am. So we, we parted ways and I went to another shop in London, sort of same thing. Mm -hmm. And I did agency and I came to Toronto through the design group. So I ended up in London at Allen Personnel, okay. um, doing the same thing, engineering skilled trades, I ended up in Mississauga at the design group shop. And I'd been in agency for a bit and sometimes you do well. And then sometimes you get into some of the larger firms where you've got people that have been there for 10, 20 years. They know everybody. Right. right. I can turn, you know, you got a wreck come in. I'm going to turn it around maybe two hours, get this person in. They hire. I take full fee. Yeah. And everybody else has got birdseed. And I had a dear friend of mine that ended up getting out of agency. He was at CIBC. That's how I came, who I came to one of your things with. And he goes, oh, yeah, he says, you got to come in-house, man. You got to go in-house, Sean. Interesting. It's, 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 it's a different vibe. You got to go in-house. And I go, okay. Okay. Continue. So, I have questions. Yeah. Okay. So I, I did that. Wait, I have questions. Let's pause here. Okay. So let's pause. Because already you've talked about some very interesting stuff. Well, I find it interesting because I sit outside of this world a little mm. bit, right? But so. The poultry tire world? <laughs> exactly. It's not my industry. <laughs> it needs to be. I haven't even got into soybeans yet. That's a whole nother topic. That's a burgeoning, burgeoning, burgeoning industry, isn't it? It's huge. Um. Okay. 
Huge. Huge. Intermodal soybeans. That's for another day. So you're trying to find people for skilled labor yeah. or unskilled labor, perhaps, but just a willingness to, to, to work in the... Yeah, these transformation of the chicken farms, yeah. chicken processing plants, the obscure industries. Uh, how do you find those people? Did you put ads on milk cartons? No, but that's good. Like, there's so much I can do with that, but I'm not going to. Um, the, a lot of that was still. I'm just. I'm. I'm pulling. I'm on the phone. But who are you calling? I'm phoning the competition. So what I ended up doing for this little chicken integrator is I called everybody in southwestern Ontario. I called chicken farmers at their homes. Yep. I see. Okay. I would. I learned to go into what used to be called at businesses phone trees. Oh, you've reached ABC Incorporated. Yeah. And if you want to talk to Jim Smith, press one. I learned if you go in and you understand the phone system they've got. Mm-hmm. You can get the entire company names and all of their phone numbers if you just take your time. Yep. So I was going into some of the regional carriers in chicken and in ag after hours. You can't say chicken and not get a little smile going. Of course. Going. Chicken's it's, fun. It's hilarious. I, I think our CMP really missed out, to be honest with you. Right? This man like, is an investigative, investigative <laughs> perspective. Like... How many more crimes would have been solved exactly. had they just like chicken crimes? This like colorblind piece, right? But like, see, I do find this interesting, especially coming from that sales perspective, where like you know a lot of people, uh, well, I, everyone has mixed emotions about about this synonymity here. But I, I see like you know talent recruitment as sales. It's it's a sales hundred percent, right? Hundred percent. I caught the tail end of the that wave of like dialing for dollars basically of like calling a company just talking to the first person you can get a hold of doesn't really matter who and finding a way to be charismatic enough to to get them to point you in the right phone direction not the digital direction but the telephonic direction i don't know yeah yeah it's a real thing yeah so you're hacking rolodexes and building your own (laughs) database of chicken people pretty much to then you know, ask around who's looking for work and, and there's some there's some good opportunity with this up this thing I got going here. And the one thing I want, so on that note, I wanted to pitch to both of you. Um, so what essentially I was doing, I didn't know it at the time, is mm-hmm. I was market mapping chicken per se. Big poultry. Because once I got into it, I knew, at least on the manufacturing engineering side, the GM, the ownership, I knew the families, I knew the inside scoop, I knew who was going to move, I knew who was applying for federal licensing. So I had that intel, if you will, Mm -hmm. that market map of this small niche. I like to say I knew stuff that the owners didn't even know before it happened. Mm. Now, the other neat thing maybe we can riff on here is Mm -hmm. we've lost that in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, unless... Well, I guess, wow, it's been a couple, nearly a decade and a half since the great, what did you call it, the Great Depression? The Great great Recession. recession. Depression. Since the housing crisis of 2008 and 2009. Yeah. And things have changed dramatically in terms of the digitization of, you know, means of contact, of people databasing and the way that people work. So tell us more about your uh, 
your lens on how things have kind of become disassociated? Well, again, I'll, I'll pitch this and please, both of you jump in. I yep. get vendors calling me every day. Hey, see, you got to sit, you know, you got this right. open and give me five minutes. I go, I go hook it up. Okay. Sean, I got this and this and here's my price. I go, okay. So two questions. Are you market mapping? Mm. If I give you a company in a level, can do you know who is there right now? Can you tell me their name and their number? Do you? In Toronto proper. Nope. Okay. Are you using open source? Are you using anything other than LinkedIn? I love LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. God love LinkedIn. Yeah. But the other piece is LinkedIn is a self-updated database, like it or not. Um, I know Adam Gellert went into a little bit of, you know, his riff on that. Right. There are people on other social platforms. There yeah. are people not on any social platforms yeah. at all. So as far as me giving you your fee, I need you to do more than say, I'm a good person. I'm on LinkedIn too, Sean, and I can guarantee you this. So it's funny because I brought up market mapping at all of my, I'll call them tours of duty. I've done contract to contract. Mm -hmm. Kronos was a contract. Kronos was, was a contract, gig. yeah. And I'm okay going gig to gig. Um, but you ask how it's changed. Well, Sean, we'd just rather send an email, really. Hope for the best. You know? Yeah, and the apathy really sets in there because everyone's on the, on the receiving side. So especially post-pandemic, right? Overwhelmed with... Yeah digital communication overwhelmed with inbound and like i'm i'm shocked by this all the time personally now i come from tech right so yeah and i've grown up with email like i i was over the moon in 95 when i started sending emails i i, I was like this is, online, man. well dude i was 15 but i'm i was used to sending faxes to my cousins in canada when i was living in kenya and we'd send funny faxes to each other like picture of your face and some stupid message and my dad would run in my bedroom being like we gotta move the fax machine that cost fifteen dollars you know? <laughs> yeah. and so when email came it's it's still like it's solidified in my brain as like the primary means of communicating uh especially for new communication but yeah we're at an all-time low in terms of the the receptiveness to email yeah. communication for people and um and i can definitely see how yeah as a means of outreach it's not great but has anything replaced it? You know, do the networks, do the messages on various platforms actually aggregate as to a, a new way of doing things or as this stratified, chaotic, entropic landscape of communication? Well, I, I think on that note, and again, both of you jump in. I think what it's done is initially, to your point, very fun, very n novel, very nuanced, like, whoa, this will change the world. Right, right. Um, again, I remember when email, DOS email, believe yep. it or not. Okay. Um, yeah. Canada Post is out of business. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we got we got the same hype all the way through, yeah. which is nuanced. Yeah. Um, I think what it's done, which is part of my message uh, when I set up this meeting, is there's a trust issue missing. Mm -hmm. If all I'm going to do is spam via LinkedIn or my special email bot, stuff there's an understanding and a trust there's basic human needs that mm. are void now in attempting to understand somebody their story their career path 
their fantasies, their career yeah. fantasies, their what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Because all of that good emotional stuff is still there. And most of the time we've taken it out by emails. Mm-hmm. Now, the piece is with the trust is where I get into the negotiation stuff. I've been doing level one work uh, with Black Swan Group, Never Split the Difference, Chris Voss, mm. hostage negotiation piece. I just started a book this week, Dr. Henry Cloud called Trust. So there's all of these unspoken things that happen with hiring managers and with candidates, all the emotional stuff people really don't want to get into now. Yeah, on both sides of the table, people are trying to be a little bit more stoic in their kind of transactional. Yeah, because I know. can send an email. I can send. Like, well, even through email. interviews, people come to an interview and they don't know what face to put on. And the interviewer may not know the culture of the organization they're hiring for. Yeah. The communication style has changed to a certain extent, but what you're talking about, like on the trust piece and just like the authenticity piece, because I lean that way as well. Like there's all these crazy tools from a recruiting perspective. AI has changed the game. Like Canada Post is going out of business. Like recruiting is going out of business. Like, that's your initial thought. That's Mm -hmm. your initial fear. I've thought a lot about this. And the one thing for me, even to your point about getting all these messages from people and you're like, do you do mapping? Like, how do you stand out? Right. And in speaking to like the niche part, like that's the thing I think that as a recruiter or any person in with a job right now in talent acquisition is probably a little bit worried about AI to a certain extent. Like if they're paying attention, right? You can do so much more, so much faster. Mm-hmm. But it comes down to, I think, and and I'd love, like, how did you, it comes down to you being able to stand out. And you have to do that in a way that's like authentic. And the second I get a LinkedIn message that speaks some level of authenticity, yeah. I'm like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to spend longer than two seconds on this message. Yes. Or if I get a phone call, you know, if if that person manages to like say something that says like, okay, this isn't like overly scripted and it's personalized, Agreed. I will give it a little bit more time before I shut things down. Mm-hmm. How did you figure that out so early? And how should other people figure that out? Good question. And I think that goes back to, you know, the funny joke of I wanted to be a helper. And, you know, and, and when I was a social worker, when I, you know, I was in child welfare, I, I was in corrections for a bit. I wanted to help without understanding. Mm. So to your point, Martin, it's when did that, we'll say that strategic juncture occur? Mm. Understand first, have a genuine curiosity to size up the situation first before you make any pitch. Mm-hmm. Just understand, and more so on the candidate side of things now um, than anywhere before. It's like, all right, where, again, it sounds like you're looking to move from this industry to this industry. Just curious why. Mm. So how can it be done? <laughs> Take time with yourself and reflect on your own curiosity. Yep. Really. Just be genuinely interested and curious in somebody else that is not, for lack of a better term, aluminum siding sales. 
or used car sales rather than just a quick transaction have a genuine curiosity in just understanding I'm going to go in I got, I got a thing here I'm going to do with both of you I've taken level one coursework with Chris Voss Black Swan hostage negotiation stuff really simple first off is how do you differ- here? Are, we do, are we doing a situation well, no, no. Well, well we can first about off about 500 chickens first off exactly alright give the money or the chickens are dead yeah. Um, your tonality and your voice sets emotionally the tone mm-hmm. for how we're going to interact. Yep. And that comes in a four-square rubric, if you will, uh, pitch, pacing, volume, and timber, which is e- the emotional overlay, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. That is both hiring manager issue, candidate issue. Yep. Um, so there's one really, really easy, easy. The other thing is listening. And I thought, come on, I'm a social worker. I did career dev. I've, you know, I've rescued these kids. I don't need, come on, it's me. Don't you know who I am? Right. And what I've learned this year, especially is my own blind spot. You know, you really want to get a decisive competitive edge. Look to your own blind spot. Yeah. Listening. There's a five-step listening staircase as per crisis people, hostage negotiators. Most of the time, I was on the first two steps. I want to listen to you, Martin, because I want to argue with you. <laughs> I want to invalidate. I want to defend. Even though you're speaking, I've got my answer. I got my rebuttal right now. Yeah. I'm not really concerned about what you have to say or who you are as a person. I just like to argue with you. You're waiting till they're done speaking. So that's yeah. stairway two. I was on that for a long time. Stairway one is I hearken back to my grandparents where my grandfather would be behind the paper. My grandma would be saying, you know, we got to do this. We got to do this. And he'd go. <laughs> so he was there, but he wasn't there. So most of the time... That's was, every married couple, my friend, at oh, some hey, point. This is going to be good for both, right? It could like be. Recruiters will benefit from this podcast. People in relationships will benefit from this So podcast. you're asking me the decisive competitive edge. I would suggest tone and vocality, one. Take a look at how you're speaking. Two, move to stair level three. And you're listening for their internal world so we're not interrupting we're mm, oh yeah oh oh geez really sounds like so you start to label instead of rebut and asking why and how and what oh sounds like sounds like you're in a rock in a hard place you're you know, the business has gone out of, you know, your reorg and you're looking for something else in technology. So you're just hanging labels on. Feels like, sounds like, it appears as if. So what do I do for that? That is basic, basic. All of my questions, both of you. What's the hows, the whys, the whens, the wheres? They're written into labels. Because if we take a look at HR proper, ish hr proper ish is very good at we'll call it interrogations yeah for lack of a better term i again i've been in the gta i've been interviewed by high-ranking hr officials directors 
VPs of HR, um, love them, traditionalists. Why? When? Where? How? And if we take a look at the neuroscience in crisis management, labels, you come in through the side door with the emotional brain and we're looking to just elicit more info. Mm -hmm. I just want to get you to talk. Mm. So if I'm at stairwell three and I don't interrupt you and I am curious about what you're telling me and I'm just continuing on that, we move to stair level four. You're going to start to trust me. Yeah. You go, oh, geez, this guy is listening. And what I've done so far, at least at Touch Bistro, since I've been there, Sean, I'm interviewing a lot of companies. You are the best person I've spoken to this week. Why? I speak a little bit differently. I slow everything down. I would suggest that I'm listening better than my competition. Hmm. Um, framing better questions at certain points in time. And um, you have to, when people feel understood, that is a core human drive that you're taking care of as a recruiter. Well, you know, search and rescue, call it what you want, recruitment, talent acquisition, whatever the handle is these days. But if you are talking to either a hiring manager, I don't know if I got time to go into that yet, or, or a candidate, mm. if you are validating their story as is, if you're making them feel psychologically safe as is, and, oh, they understand me, they get it. What that does from a neuroscience standpoint, that releases a flood of oxytocin. Yeah. And, you know, same thing if anybody, if anybody's got kids out there, um, it's, it's, a, it's a basic human drive. So that was a long-winded answer to your question. But just the basic, I had to go back, recognize my blind spot because, hey, don't you know who I am? I've done this and I've done that. But I was on that loop of continually... Well, if nothing else, I up. it sounds to me that like, you know, people typically fall into this trap of confusing intention and means, right? Yeah. So we're very intention focused as humans. Yeah. Uh, so I would see in this sort of role, you're interviewing candidates or otherwise, and um, and you want to align with their story and you want to parse that information quickly, especially if you're an external recruiter and you're running through like tons of interviews a day, yeah. different clients, that call and response, you know, kind of performative mandate is, seems efficient. And, uh, and I think the intention always is, is to like try and get, you know, the best out of the answers from the candidates, but absolutely the means is wrong. You know, you have to take a backseat and you have to let the person reveal themselves. Yeah. And, you know, I, it's nothing new because people say to me on my team now, oh, Sean, you're so good. You're, so thank you. I, I think that's very, it's um, Barb Bruno. It's Peter Lefkowitz. It's Lou Adler. It's anybody that has been in that external agency game for a long time. And it's coming back to being curious about the basics of just how you're speaking and how you're listening. Uh, because the top of that stair level is level five 
or people was, and again, we take a look at FBI, CIA sort of stuff. We take a look at the three lives of people. There's their public life. Mm -hmm. Here's who I present mm -hmm. to the public. Your personal life, which is what's going on just under the surface. Mm -hmm. Then there's your private life. You don't tell anybody but your psychiatrist or your therapist or whoever. And um, there's a guy called Everyday Spy. He was a CIA. Oh, man. He's brilliant. I, he love, was. I love that channel. Yeah. Absolutely. And this is where this comes. CIA. Do you know this guy? Lives. No, no. It's, it's very, it's very fun. We should think of his name. It's, it's funny. He's on a great brand of Everyday Spy because that just sticks in your head, right? Yeah. It's not his name. It's, it's his not his name. But he is an ex-case. Uh, uh, he was on a CIA case. Um, and this is where I got like this. Like my from. mom for a second. Mm -hmm. um, fact check. But that, that's, that's where you get full disclosure. And if we talk about, you know, what happens at offers. Andrew Bustamante. Andrew Bustamante. Right. Exactly. He's Busta fantastic. Exactly. Everyday spy. <laughs> so if I, if I riff for a second here, what's coming out at offer, um, I'm understanding at offer, I got a couple situations, especially this year. Well, Sean, I got to. I got to check in with, they're telling you their life. I can't accept this offer till I talk to grandma. Grandma. Hmm. Oh, okay. Well, it sounds like, you know, again, same thing. You're, you're, you know, you, you don't go in for the kill hmm. in the cell. You go, okay, where, like, where does she, where does she fit in? What do you think her thoughts are? How do you want to play this? And it's just complete, it's that curiosity piece again. Mm -hmm. But once you get to that level five and you're consistently there as far as just listening, people will tell you the hidden. There's deal killers all over the place. Sure. That we often don't think about. And it's understanding that here's what I'm presenting, but here's what I'm keeping in my vest pocket. And again, it's not to be, you know, I think what you're suggesting here is is to kind of develop a means of more accurately understanding both the motive, intention, and um, yeah. even cultural background, right, mm. of the candidates if you're placing people in roles yeah. uh, to just have the best outcome as opposed to kind of look for secrets for the sake of that. It's more like... Yeah where you're entrusted perhaps by your client, a hiring organization, an organization needs to fill roles. Yeah. When you're entrusted with the means of securing them, you know, path to success and whatever yes. their business outcome is, uh, and having hopefully team members join their team that not only ensure the success of the organization on the balance sheet, but also yes. the success of team members working with that new person and together yeah. as a team it's a loaded responsibility. I think from my outsider perspective, a lot of recruiters don't necessarily take on as a responsibility. You know, there's this, we've heard this on, on season one of this show from numerous guests that have talked about, um, you know, the expected tenure of a new placement and how as a stat, they're seeing it as a, as an average reduce. And they're saying, well, it's a kind of a market factor issue. People used to stick around for five years, then they stuck around for about two, now they're sticking around for about six months. And, oh, man, we've got to work harder, or I don't know what we have to do to churn those people, have a backup candidate ready for when, you know, Jim 
quits. And I, I think what you're saying is actually a counterbalance, which is kind of like everyone needs for the most part, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, mm-hmm. employment, they need, you know, means of, of, you know, earning an income to pay their bills, but also in finding and channeling purpose in life. Right. Mm. So if yeah. that's a need in our society, then we have to see this, uh, HR kind of people in culture industry as, um, is really kind of needing, uh, or I think the nature has to change in terms of how people deal with this idea of building teams to make them more successful, to make them more fun, more connective. I would think what you're touching on reminds me of something that I don't think gets taught in school, which is really finding ways to know yourself. Right. And, churn is someone essentially saying this isn't what i signed up for yes yeah and how much of that is based on like a good recruiter ideally base level recruiter is just going to be transparent about the environment at the company so that when a person arrives the job that was advertised and the job that was investigated is what the job actually is and if something happens at the company because you know, business changes and it's dynamic and we're in a crazy economy. Yeah. They're, the individual is not going to look to the recruiter or to the business and blame them for those changes. But if it doesn't match what they were told, then yeah. you've got a trust issue to, yes. to your point. Yeah. So I think going back to the like education piece, it's because people don't know what they want and they're sort of figuring out especially now more than ever, because you've got sort of glorification of being an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. um, glorification of being an influencer, and you're comparing yourself. So like you've got kids growing up in this environment that I don't even have like a good sense of where it's just like bombarded with information and Instagram shorts of like all these successful people. And they're like, oh, I got to catch up. I got to be yeah. da, 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 da. Meanwhile, there's all these jobs, professions and roles out there that are perfectly respectable, perfectly challenging, and are actually like might be aligned to what they want to do. I don't know about either of you, but it took me a really long time to figure out what I actually enjoyed doing. And it was mostly by accident. I think like... Enjoy doing? What are you talking about? (laughs) There you go. Well, yeah, maybe we got to do some deep work right now, right? Like, (laughs) I don't know. Entrepreneurialism and running companies isn't about enjoying yourself. No, no, I'm just... (laughs) shit disturbing but you know i i think you're right but i i'll say i'll put on my employer hat and and kind of Mm. contribute a little bit here where i'll say that i have certainly through recruiters and direct to market you know source talent potential uh potential talent that certainly did not have a sense of who they are let alone what they want in life, right? And that background uh, profile wasn't complete to be able to then apply themselves to a particular role in an organization, mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. Um, so I don't see that as necessarily a failure on the recruiter who brought me that kind of, you know, the potential person. Mm-hmm. Um, they certainly did not look deep enough. Uh, they certainly also didn't kind of undertake this like, um, you know, EI driven kind of approach whatever you want to brand it as this yeah. multi-step kind of approach to like getting deep with the candidate to, to look at who they are and understand what they want. Because 
you're right, Martin, that like people might not express what they want because they might not be sure of it. But at yeah. the same time, there are clues to when you sit down with someone, what drives them and what the passions are and how maybe uh, a, a role could enable the latent want for that discovery in their own persona, right? Mm, yeah. um, but at the same time, yeah, when I'm sitting down with a candidate directly, I'm trying to offer them the potential to reveal that to myself. Yes. And uh, and you do have to do a lot of cycling, perhaps. I, I find that I spend more time with candidates than I thought I would have to in order to draw that stuff out off in cases. Mm, yeah. um, but also that for me, the fault lies in the, the means of triage. You know, like it's it's the best candidates that I've ever found have kind of found us. Yes. Right. So they mm. found Startwell and they see the connection for themselves. Yeah. And they're like, that's a place where I can, you know, apply myself because it's so exciting. Like they, I, I want people who work for my company to be driven yeah by what they see, to your point, what I'm excited by, because I think that that like breathes through our brand, right? Mm -hmm. And what the people who are our clients are excited by, because mm -hmm. that breathes through the content we produce. Mm -hmm. And so we try and do that storytelling to kind of like open that up. And if people connect with that story, then that's great. That's a, that's a 10 steps ahead of the person who sends me uh, a resume or, a, you know, an application through some formal channel. Yeah. So... It is, it's very interesting, but I think that that brings us full circle to this idea that like, though the milieu may change and the technology may evolve and things may become less personal in terms of the means of sourcing talent and finding jobs for the talent, mm -hmm. the role doesn't change. The need for the role doesn't change. No. People still need to work and, um, and, and still want to feel fulfilled in life through work, hopefully. I think, you know, to your, to both of your points, I think there's going to be a lot of, you know, we're going to see where AI takes us. Um, uh, I question the hype on that. We just jump into a little bit of critical thinking because I remember America Online, oh, Canada Post, no more mail. Remember? I don't think people listening to this or watching this, other than, you know, us understand what America Online is. It was an email provider very early when we made the big jump to the World Wide Web not so long ago. Do you, did you know what American you know the flop, was? The floppy disk? Hey, yes. I signed up for the, yeah. yeah I had like 40 of them. Hook it I up. don't know how they afforded that. Those were expensive. Yeah. America up. Online. America Online. So uh, <laughs> they... It was the, it was probably the first, them and CompuServe were the first walled the garden first, social network yeah. that kind of owned the internet experience, right? That was, that was a big deal. Log on through us, but stop before you log out. No, stop before you get out of our gate to the open internet. To the open... And right. find the best on our services which we can kind of monetize so the, my, my point being that technology is always going to change hence uh we've had blockchain blockchain has always been around peer-to-peer -peer. i know it is peer-to-peer -peer. uh the technology is there we have ai ai has been around for a bit yeah. now it's sort of vogue if we will quite regal could it change maybe vogue my my suggestion <laughs> is work life uh recruiting life hiring life is 99% emotional. Yeah. Whether we like it, whether we don't, and we're going to try to be as logical as we can. And what I've known since my journey with my blind spots, my own conceit, my own arrogance, there's no machine that can take that away. It's called a human fallibility. And my suggestion would be if you really want a decisive competitive edge mm -hmm. in this 
whatever we're going to call it in this understanding people, listening. Just take a look at your listening level. Take a look at how you're speaking. Um, and just really sit with your blind spots and your failures because I did not become a success in chicken overnight. Like that was a lot of failure in the beginning. Same thing with tires. Oh. Same thing on automotive recruiting. Same thing all the way through. Mm -hmm. And it's taking time with your failures and understanding, okay, so there's environmental circumstances. Roger that. And what did I not see? Mm. Where am I? Be loving and gentle with yourself. Be curious. And just take that time, as you said, Martin. There's not, we don't take a lot of time to be with ourselves, to understand, okay, pathways, what do I like? Do I have to get 90? I got to get a 90% honors, big company. There's still that pathway. We're still pitching to people that myth of don't take time with yourself. Just do really good in school, get a good job, make a lot of money. So there's still that pathway plus influencer pathway, plus start your own gig, plus side hustle. Yet at the same time, I have people apply to me that have five side hustles go bankrupt. Hmm. <laughs> okay. So there you go. There's the proof right there. Yeah. You're not a entrepreneurial type, though they tell me they are. Um, oh, yeah. But I would, I would suggest, despite the technology, uh, I think most of what we do, it's 99% emotional. And I think the more that we can come to terms with that and acknowledge that, that could improve things. I'd love to hear your take on how that is challenged or inhibited or enabled or a mixture of all of those by the current, you know, hybrid technological milieu then. In terms of, and there's a few ways to spin this, right? There's yeah. this kind of like people working multiple days a week at home, communicating using digital first tools with the rest of their team. Yeah. They're so distributed workforce. There's multi-time zone, you know, kind yeah. of more permanent distributed workforce. There's um, video conferencing. Yeah. All of this stuff. So like, yeah, what's your response to that? Or how do you see through... Uh, the limitations in, in through 2024 and beyond for, for organizations. Well, it's interesting because, you know, we all got sent home in 2020, March, uh, because of something that happened globally. We all got online. Um, I was doing flex stuff with you here, believe it or not. Really? I think I was doing hot desking with you before hot desking was a thing. Um, <laughs> uh, and... My question to everybody is where is, you know, where is the emotion? Where are we, you know, where are we losing emotion mm -hmm. or connection? Where are we gaining emotion or connection? Um, there, it's always fun to have be in person. Yeah. It is. And there's advantages to remote. There is. Yep. And I guess my answer to your question is if we take a look at a macro perspective, what is the goal? Okay. So we got people at the, we got people at the South Pole. They're at the U.S. weather station. 
at the South Pole. They're remote at the South Pole. They can work anytime they want. Okay. So doing, what is the goal? Mm -hmm. What is the goal if you got people on trans-Pacific flights doing gigs? Okay. You're, what, what, is, what is the goal? And I don't think that we know what the goal is, really, from a business perspective. You got people all over the world working, sort of. Okay. What's yeah, the goal? Short of profit and, you know, uh, short-term gain in terms of efficiency measurement, the extra factors that involve, yeah, justified tenure and local culture within organization, all mm. of that stuff, I think, you know, people don't spend enough. Organizations very rarely spend time actually defining those wants and what, you know, a template for success is for their people to feel belonging and empowerment and all of this stuff. Yeah. So you're right. I mean, without defining those things, you can't know what the best way to create the means to success for your team is. And you don't maybe see where the red flags are um, in the tools that you use to, to facilitate work, right? Yeah. And I think everyone, you know, prior to pandemic, hot desking prior to pandemic mm -hmm. um, was a thing because the technology was there to allow for fluidity. It's no longer nine to five. Keep in mind that what's happening right now, the back to office piece and how we've been living the past 120 years dates back from Henry Ford. And right. that's right. That's Taylorism. That's nine to five, Monday nine to Friday. Five, Monday, Friday. It, was, it was a construct of the factory life there you for go. efficiency. So you got eight hours work, eight hours sleep, eight hours fun and family. And due to deep inertia of humans, we've carried that we're still carrying that into post-pandemic world where we got people distributed we got people hybrid we got people in antarctica we got people on planes working but we're still we're still pulling you know 1910 1890 yeah. mindset or paradigms and i think it's worth a discussion hence i i you know i think i pitched to both of you wouldn't it be neat to get some very cool people who you've talked to into your east wing party room right for a half day and just right. sort of hash this out really as to what what do we want to do what is the goal here for everybody so yeah we want to be profitable yet at the same time by allowing someone to work in antarctica okay fun very cool very niche very kitschy mm -hmm. so and they last two and a half years. They go to another place that allows them to work at the North Pole. <laughs> so it, it's worth, again, facilitating conversation. And I would suggest to both of you what we need in GTA Toronto proper because it's a busy place. I just told you, you know, it's lots of startups, Martin, but we all know yeah. who we know who we know. It's a small it's small. A small. And what would be really cool, maybe next year, I don't know, I'm just pitching this, <laughs> is just start to facilitate these these subjects, these, these yeah, these conversations. Yeah, we've been talking about doing that actually, and and we kind of did that first like soft test of an event, I guess, last week. Yeah. And it was a panel, but I think this roundtable format for like you know to actually see the discussion happen uh, in person, yeah, mm -hmm. and then record it would be. Fantastic. Yeah. Get multiple perspectives on Love it. on a topic per month. Yeah. I like that. 
Yeah, and it's not just and and really dig in. I I think a big thing is getting, uh, you know, getting all sides of a table at the table. So people from organizations that are hiring that have interesting policies on how they tackle these issues. Yeah. To actually talk about them. Yeah. Right. And not just a bunch of recruiters saying, "Yeah, this is what my clients should be doing," and so on. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Agreed. Hundred uh, percent. I fully agree with this. We're pulling these like nine to five, yeah. ancient. You know, the resume hasn't changed since like Edison or Franklin. I forget which. Like wrote out the first sort of like recorded, popularized resume. Yeah. So that hasn't changed. Nine to five hasn't changed, and we're in this wild. Like it took a pandemic for us to embrace the efficiency and benefits of using uh, technology, there's obviously trade-offs that you have to make. And those are interesting. I'm curious, like at this round table discussion, the question of where do you start first and how do you go about it? Well, that, that would take me. And again, I'm, I'm open to riff on this. Yeah. What is the goal? And the reason being is the, again, of all my travels, um, I've been at a couple of startups that tanked. They went under. I've been on a couple of operations teams that done, mm. gone. You're, there's your box. Goodbye. Right. And I got, I've been studying a thing called the theory of constraints for about five years now. And it's from a book in the 80s called The Goal. Very, very, a lot of very just basic, systematic organization questions. What is the goal? What is the barrier to achieving the goal? Mm-hmm. Where are we in relation to the goal? What is the direction and magnitude of change required to move from status quo or inertia to realizing the goal? So, I would suggest to facilitate these discussions is, you know, part of this gig is, okay, in people and culture, in hiring, in search, in recruiting, what's the goal, everybody? Mm -hmm. Really? We know from a business standpoint, there's net profit and competitive advantage, okay? Mm. Beyond that, what we have done, what we do, what's the goal? What's the weak link? Um... But that's sort of my... No, I like that. I like that as a, as a kind of like a basis for all of these discussions, you know? Not necessarily as it's, I mean, as it ends to itself. Yeah. But, yeah, it's so true, man. And and we've got we've got enough content to, so we can, can just keep talking and not worry about the recording bit of it. But like, <laughs> um, but I think, I think it's very interesting, right? Like, like the no bullshit take on this, and maybe this is also worth cutting in uh, to the episode, but like... The way I look at things, right, being a technologist who's done work in all different industries, like so many different industries in my life and worked on different continents and stuff. Yeah. I think, you know, everyone, of course, has uh, geospecific blinders uh, on, you know, wherever they are, but especially in North America that we forget about in North America because this place is so separate from the rest of the world. We have living links through our ethnocultural diversity in this city yeah. to a lot of the world. However... Working teams, particularly in the majority of industries of our city specifically, which are professional services, you know, the banks and then the insurance companies, all these big institutional enterprises are limited because 
they're still, for the most part, structured by these archaic hierarchies of uh, politic. And without stripping those, there's no way to, you know, undertake like innovative ways of self-empowerment and, you know, tap the collaborative potential of the workforce. And, And even, and this is the interesting thing, even invert the expectation of the work-life balance to say, you're Judy first and second Judy from accounting. Like, you know, like, so the thing is, you've got this career history of people working in the machine and the machine has robbed them of the potentiality of their being. Yes. I personally have no expectations. I don't give a fuck. I don't, I don't have any expectations for those organizations to magically transform into unicorns, into like flying butterflies and, and like, you know, alleviate the suffering of their like paper cut handed employees, you know, that I, I don't care. But where what's interesting for me is from the lens of the kind of scrappy startups and the SMBs and the companies that are kind of like have to be in control of their destiny. Yes. And that are out there earning their daily bread. Yes. You hope if they're not pumped with VC capital. Um that they can answer these questions. They can start from a small, yes. you know, uh, seedling of want and grow any plant that they desire. And I mean, I always tell people that are spe- especially bootstrapping to say, well, question these things. Like, what do you want your life to be? Because all this bullshit, the Silicon Valley bullshit of saying, do you want a lifestyle business or do you want a venture capital funded fucking rocket ship, right? Like, lifestyle business should not have any, in fact, it should be glorified. Mm. It should not have any tar on its yeah. varnish. Like, I, I look at this stuff and I say, well, how do you want to live? Because business enables that, right? Agreed. And and your toils should be uh, meritus yeah. for employees, for owners, for everyone. Like yeah. that's how societies become greater is when people feel fulfilled and, you know, take siestas or sit by the piazza and like, you know, smoke naked and all these things. Smoke naked. That was my little allusion to European life, right? <laughs> but like... Yeah. That's that's the thing that we're robbed of in, in, in North America because I think the yes. built environment is so stoic, right? And it's so like dirty and gray. Yeah, it's yeah, agreed. And it's we're, we're still pulling that paradigm from the 1800s of 150 years ago. We'll call it from the Industrial Revolution with with us. Sorry. Um, sorry about that. Might as well. We're still recording. Sorry. Okay. Um and that is worth a discussion on its own, yeah. separate and apart from what we just talked about. We go, okay, so let's get on the table. These paradigms we're backpacking with, and we've been backpacking for a while, yeah. yet technology is enabling this fluidity or this flexibility, mm-hmm. hence to your point, that is a little good, a little bad. We're not sure how, you know, it's a power wobble. We're not sure how to make sense of it yet. And, you know, taking the time to unpack that yeah. industrial revolution shit doesn't work for us. Yeah. But we're we're still carrying it. Um, I see so many armchair sociologists say this. Elon Musk, you asshole. You are so rich and you're wasting your money annoying people with X. 
why don't you instead end poverty or stop malaria or blow up Vladimir Putin? You know, like the, the idea of this kind of throwing stones on the potentiality. And at the same time, I don't see enough people saying, okay, in the face of the threat of AI that will take away triage jobs, do we see that as a means of firing 20% of our workforce for greater efficiencies at a lower cost? Mm. Or can that alleviate that workforce quotient to do different cool things? Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. So like, it's like, there is that whole thing. But like, again, this that's not, this is not content necessarily for like, it's, it's not a packaged content uh, for an episode of a podcast, but it's like, the means, I think, to push the dialogue and the conversations, especially the roundtables, to say, like, if we can curate them well enough to have people at the table that are challenging the status quo yeah. of the post-industrial complex. Yeah. Because part of this, you know, again, that theory constraints piece is it's the blind spot piece is challenge my assumptions, mm -hmm. challenge my beliefs. Um, and all that stuff that I was carrying were just assumptions about this is the way it has been. This is the way yeah. it should be. Yeah. So if we take a look at that piece, that industrial revolution piece, that nine to five piece, is that a belief system? Are those assumptions that have yet to be, we'll call them exposed and in a gentle, loving way challenged because people like to hang on. There's, a, there's an immunity to change. Right. So once you start digging... And you surface those assumptions and those belief systems that have been around for a long time. That's yeah, yeah. People get scared. It's all, it's almost ironic that as a founder or business owner, entrepreneur, whatever, that you have this drive to challenge status quo for whatever product or service that you're building, mm -hmm. but you don't do it at the same time with how work gets done within your organization. Because exactly. it's such a loaded topic, right? Like it's so loaded. Like also remember that like if you're putting a product or service in a market, your customers are subject to whatever their dogmas are and routines are, Yeah. right? So there's that, there's the expectation of labor to perform, even present itself in this way. People wanting to work like you hear dumb shit from candidates, man, dumb shit. Talking about this topic of like, you know, enabling people to be themselves and their truest self and how distance then questioning how distant people are from that. And like, can you even as a team or a company enable that? Well, not for everybody, because a lot of people are too far from themselves to be able to go on that journey. Yes. Sorry. Can't invest in you. Too expensive. Yes. Seriously, like, whew. And, um, but so the point is that, like, you can have change without a revolution, but you can also be a revolutionary and not embrace change. Yeah. The way I look at it. So, like, being a startup founder, I mean, there's so much that you're faced with changing. And also, this is another thing. You see it when you work at a startup, right? Yeah. yeah. Where... The visionary, if they're visionary leadership, they're not necessarily about being leaders. Typically, they're really they're trying to do something cool, right? Mm -hmm. they're obsessed with what they're doing that's cool. Everything around them to do the organization is like, someone else figured this shit out. I don't give a fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Why do I want to give a fuck about Judy's life? Oh my God, who is that? Wasn't she Martha? Oh, she's yeah. Judy now? That's not their concern because they're like, their whole perspective on reality is framed by the product market fit, the, the possibility of what they're trying to achieve. The company side of it normally isn't at least attached to the visionary founder type of person. Uh, and that's another convolution of business in the modern era is that like most startups are actually run by greedy fucks. It's, they're not run by people obsessed with cool. Interesting. That's that's a misnomer. Like Silicon Valley purports this ethos of like solutions can solve society, right? And businesses are the ways to achieve that. But if you really like take all the whatever top invested in companies and their leadership and their their the founders and you line them up they're not going to survive the firing range of cool very few few of them are actually cool most of them are like total i mean you've seen this right with all the like theranos type people like they're all like morally ambiguous greedy egomaniacs and you have to be to survive the VC funding cycles and to get something to an IPO in under five years and like make a billion dollars, you know? That's that was that's the glorified piece, right? Yeah. And I feel like to your point about the the lifestyle business, like as an entrepreneur myself, I'm leaning way more to the lifestyle business approach of things. And I think more and more people are yeah. because the the veil is off on what, dump and dump. Yeah. What that actually is. Like, yeah. okay, you're going to get all this money and it's going to be, you're going to do things with it. You're going to make mistakes. And it now you have new bosses, by the way. You, you signed up for this if you're a founder or entrepreneur or whatever. And you, you signed up for all this stuff and you want to focus on the thing that you wanted to focus on. But because you got all this money, you inorganically grew, and yeah. now you have adopted all these challenges and problems you never even actually knew what you were signing up for. Like going back to like the job description, yeah, you didn't know. You didn't know that yeah. at some point, because you want to build this big thing, you are going to have to care about your employee base because you you have new KPIs and those KPIs are growth and that's mm -hmm. tied to the VC and, and kind of going back to like the preference, like you, for me, like lifestyle's interesting and more appealing at this time because I've seen so much of like the VC startup space. And like, I'm curious, like you've had such a diverse range of experiences and like I was on the industrial side myself, like, yeah, that seems to probably be pervasive. Like you're you're at that spot now. Like you worked in corporate and you worked up through, you know, corporate ladders and now you're more on on your kind of like okay with being a contractor and, you know, being able to take that risk. Some of that comes with privilege and experience and all that fun stuff. But like yeah. there is a true mentality shift. I think it's happening faster for folks. Agreed. Yes, 100%. And, you know, it, it's interesting Again, I could be here all day. You guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I don't. don't want I don't. Want, I don't want to go. Um, but I come from. I don't come from a long line of police officers. I come from a long line of general contractors, tradespeople. I was the black sheep in the family, so they went job to job. There was nothing. They started a gig. 
they had to go out and about and look for next construction project. Um, that was the way it was for same, us yeah, a long time ago prior to the Industrial Revolution where you went gig to gig. And I've had a lot of people tell me of all ages, oh, Sean, how did you do that? Weren't you afraid? Yeah. <laughs> and you must be terrified every day. I had, was no gig. I, I had a scope. I had a start. I had a finish date. Okay. Most of the time it was straight shot. Hmm. See ya. And all the while I was doing that job, I was out and about looking for next gig. I took a seven week, I got a call once out of the blue. I got a text message from a vendor, Sean, we need somebody to come in for seven weeks to take care of the overload for machine shop. Are you down for it? Yep. Be there in the morning. And that seven weeks turned into six months. Mm. which converted to something else. Yeah. So there's always luck, there's odds, and there's a whole bunch of things. But if we go back to paradigms, and that might be maybe some of these roundtable questions, is we've got a 21st century paradigm. Mm. We're still carrying an 18th century paradigm. Paradigm. We've got everything in between. And you go gig to gig, everything's cool. You've got a confidence piece. But at the same point in time, it's that mindset of even though you're doing your job, you're out and about. You're always out and about, networking, talking, seeing if there's any gaps in the, you know, anything of that sort. And I don't know if you'd call that entrepreneurship. I don't know if you'd call that crazy. I don't know what you'd call it. But I get, I talk to people that want a guaranteed full-time job plus pension plus private car plus a private jet at Pearson Airport. And I'm so sorry we don't do that here. Yeah. So, No, it's really interesting. I think we're at this kind of like in North America, we're at this interesting juncture where I think for so long there's been a cultural dichotomy, right? That's existed between, I hate the labeling, but blue collar and white collar. Yeah. In the 80s, the white collar was at its height, mm. right? And since then, it's gotten all kerfuffled, mainly because of technology and the breakdown of the top tier earning kind of access to a million dollar plus, you know, annualized or whatever the fucking number is. Yeah. 100,000 plus even, right? Yeah. But like, it's interesting. I, I think that that's a big, that schism in the dichotomy is, is a source of a lot of angst and a lot of... Um, misunderstanding about even potentiality. Right? Agree. People don't necessarily go into a job with an entrepreneurial mindset. No. So they think of it as this thing where they're parking themselves. Then they have anxiety. Oh, I'm only 24 and I don't even know how to put makeup on my face yet. Even though I have a million subscribers on TikTok that want to see how to put makeup on. I mean, is that my side hustle or is being a barista my main passion? And you know, like, there's all this like conflict. That was a real person that we hired. Okay. Um, yeah, there's all this convolution because um, I don't think people think of a job as something they can apply that themselves through and discover themselves through, mm. right? And yes. be entrepreneurial about it and be like, a job can throw different things at you every day. You still have one job for one company and you're still doing different. You're a contractor internally. Entrepreneurship. Agreed. Creative yes. industries understand this, by the way. This is an office problem. If you talk to people and like Bonjo will tell you, he's he does film set stuff and it's like, 
you're just you got to come together as a team and you're like putting things together and you got when you're a gaffer you might be holding a a boom i don't know thing and then you might be doing some lighting you might be doing different things but you're still working on the same you know production yeah um so anyway that that's a different thing that but that is a lot of fodder maybe for maybe for the round table is to unpack the future of white collar right like what does office work mean today Good and how can you learn from different creative industries from whatever you call it skilled labor yeah there's, there's a lot there we'll talk more about that cool cool love it um okay we're done the recording portion of the podcast this i gotta tell you guys it's been a fucking blast <laughs> <laughs> this is fun. party time yeah